Welcome to Supersized Science, the podcast that features research and discoveries nationwide enabled by advanced computing technology and expertise at the Texas Advanced Computing Center of the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Jorge Salazar, a science writer at TAC. The COVID-19 virus holds some mysteries. Scientists remain in the dark on details of its behavior, such as how it fuses and enters the host cell, how it assembles itself, and how it buds off the host cell to spread infection. Computational modeling combined with experimental data can provide insights into these behaviors. But modeling over timescales long enough to mean anything has so far been limited to bits and pieces of the coronavirus like its spike protein, which is a target for the current round of vaccines. A new multi-scale coarse-grained model of the complete SARS-CoV-2 virion, its core genetic material and capsid shell, has been developed using supercomputers. The new model offers scientists potential to gain new insights and vulnerabilities in the coronavirus's large-scale behavior. On the podcast today are Gregory Voth of the University of Chicago and Romy Amaro of the University of California, San Diego. They're co-authors of a study that details a new computer model of the complete coronavirus, published in November 2020 in the Biophysical Journal. Doctors Voth and Amaro, welcome to Supersized Science. What are the findings of the new study? First of all, I want to be clear, that model is was you know very hard to develop. It's a first-generation model. The idea is that it's a computational platform for constant improvement as more structures become available experimentally or more simulations get done. For example, Romeo Amaro contributed some molecular dynamics simulations on the spike proteins, things like that. So without question, it's a work in progress. The whole premise, which I think is hard to argue against, is that that virus particle, right, the whole particle is a cooperative thing. In other words, you, you can't just view it as the sum of all these individual pieces, these proteins, they work together in some way, right? And so the early results that were in that paper show how the spike proteins on the surface of the virus move cooperatively. They don't move independently like this bunch of random uncorrelated motion. They work together. Uh, we have a follow-up paper in the works on how when that interacts with these ACE2 receptors, which are the things in the airways that get infected, how they work cooperatively to bind to more than one of those. And as that occurs, then the changes in those proteins occur. So it's, it's definitely the whole goal of that is that we wanted to understand how the thing works holistically, right, as a whole particle. And you just, it's very hard. I know Rami's trying to build a, an all-atom model, you know, a, a full all-atom model. And I think that's approaches a billion atoms when you throw in the water and everything. And, and then, of course, you have to simulate it. And it's hard to do much more than sort of hundreds of nanoseconds. So the real time scales of that virus particle are much longer. And so this coarse grain model can get us there. And what we did is develop what's called a, a bottom-up coarse grain model where we took molecular level information from MD simulations, from experiments, and we have methods we've been developing over, gosh, now 20 years or so of doing this coarse grain modeling to coarsen that data to make it into uh, simpler representations. Ordinarily, my group is more focused on building models of the, the virus and its piece parts in very detailed way, right? All the way down to the atoms. And that's really informative for like understanding how it works and understanding like mechanism, but also for understanding potentially like giving you information that could be useful to design new drugs 
in order to do that, you really need to have an understanding of where all the atoms really are. But when we include all of that detail, what we lose is the ability to simulate over the long time scales that are required over, for example, the viral infection process. So like our models are great, but they do have their limitations. That's really a main one. So in this new work, and this was really led by Greg, this is like his specialty. He has devised something, it's called coarse graining. So it's a way to represent the virus and like the spike protein and the molecules, not all the way down to the atomic level, but to a slightly sort of rougher level. It allows us to retain a lot of the most important properties of the spike and of the virus. Maybe not the atomic positions, but like information about how it moves, it has in spades. This type of method that he's developed will allow you know, us and others to simulate over the longer timescales that are needed to actually simulate the virus infecting a cell. If we actually want to look at that. I mean, and we can try with all Adam to look at snapshots, but a method like his could give us that continuous movie in terms of a trajectory of how we can understand it. Coarse grain model is where you lower the resolution. You don't resolve every single atom, but more groupings of atoms. And if you do it well, which is, you know, it's always a challenge, you don't throw out any of the essential physics. So you, you maintain the physics in there. And the benefit of the coarse grain model is that, you know, it can be hundreds to thousands of times more computationally efficient than the all-atom model because you're what you're left with are the much slower motions, the collective motions, and the effects of the higher frequency all-atom motions are folded into those interactions if you do it well. So that's the idea. That's the idea of systematic coarse graining. That's the benefit is I think it's the only way to get to certain questions. What molecular dynamics simulations can be done, you know, Romy is one and others is look at these individual spike proteins, some of their conformational landscape and changes in their properties. And then that's also, that's very, very valuable. For example, that gives information on drugs or antibodies, how they would bind to it. But then what we want to do is take that kind of information and look at how they all work together cooperatively. The paper we published shows the beginnings of that, right? So how the the modes of motion are correlated. They're coupled to each other. One protein moves, another one moves to in response to that. The ultimate goal of that model would be to, as a first step, to study the initial attractions and interactions with ACE2 receptor proteins in your cells and to understand that attraction and then the steps of how those proteins work together to go to the fusion process which is, of course, essential, right? This virus particle fuses with your cell and injects its nucleic acid into your cell and replicates itself. And along the way, it's got other proteins that do bad things to you. So, so as, as a part of its process of replicating, these other things that come along for the ride uh, uh, hurt you. And ultimately, the goal would be to understand that process at the scale it occurs, right? That's the idea. Can you speak to your work on the NSF-funded Frontera supercomputer of the Texas Advanced Computing Center? How did Frontera help you overcome the computational challenges of building the COVID-19 virus model? 
Also, can you speak to the work done on the Anton II system of the Pittsburgh Supercomputing Center? On the Frontera system, several things. One is the molecular dynamics simulations, uh, both on Frontera and on Anton II were done there, a very large scale. I know uh, Romy's group did some and we did some, but also the simulation of this virus particle itself is run on Frontera. It's much faster and much more simplified, but that also can be run there. The goal, I think, you know, down the road would be to have more than one of those virus particles and look at a whole collection of them infecting cells and sort of scale it up even more. So in this multi-scale modeling, so these big computers have been very valuable. They help provide everything from the atomistic interactions from standard molecular dynamic simulations to these coarse grain models. And so that's the idea. I mean, I think it's also a platform for for information. So as more and more information gets in, you, you assume this particle, of course, obeys the laws of physics. So we can build a, a working model. I would say, once again, Frontera has shown how important it is for these studies of the virus. I mean, at multiple scales, it was really critical uh, at the atomic level to understand the underlying dynamics of the spike with all of its atoms. And there's still a lot to learn there. But now, this information can be used a second time to develop new methods that allow us to go out longer and farther, like the coarse graining that Greg has made. And there also, even though, yes, he's reducing the resolution. If you were just looking at the dynamics of a single protein, it's more efficient and it saves compute time relative to the all-atom version. But his goal is to, again, and he has, you know, put it into the context of the whole virus, bringing all those pieces together even using a coarse grain model, but to get out over those time scales, I'm not sure if you can do it in any other place. Frontier is probably one of only two machines in the country or three machines that could actually do the work, I would guess. And then the quick turnaround time. I mean, I think one of the things, and I always say this whenever I give talks, it's just, I try to impress on people is like how rapidly you all made the machine available for use by folks studying COVID is really special. I mean, because, you know, that, that just hasn't ever happened before. Um, uh, certainly not to the extent that you all did. And so that sort of wrap on top of having access at all, because, you know, we need the scale of the, the machine, also the speed at which it was accessed was really critical. I mean, I know he made fast work of course graining that and it's hard work, you know, but he was able to do it and do it pretty quickly. What he presents is just sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of what can be done with that method. I'm sure that his group and others will be like continuing that work to look at how the virus changes dynamics, you know, um, as it approaches the host cell and so forth. So this was really sort of helping to set the stage for the community to have this method to, you know, use it um, also going forward. What's the most important thing you want the public today to know about using supercomputers to understand COVID-19? Well, I always say the first thing is I like that people know that we exist because I think that so many people, when they think of scientists, they still have no idea that there are people who use computers to do their work and that there's so much that can be learned there. So the main thing that we exist, and then the second thing, you know, it's just the really cool thing I think about Frontera and these types of methods is that we can give people much more accurate views of how these viruses are moving and actually sort of caring about their work. 
that there are parts of the virus that are invisible even to experiment. And through the types of methods that we use on Frontera through the great computational resource there, we can give scientists the first views and, and these important views into what these systems really look like with all of their complexity and how they're interacting with antibodies or drugs or with parts of the host cell. And these are things that otherwise they wouldn't be able to see. You know, the type of information that Frontera is giving researchers not only helps to sort of understand the basic mechanisms of viral infection, but also, you know, that type of information can be useful for the design of safer and better medicines to treat the disease and to prevent it. This research, how it benefits non-scientists? Well, I think it goes without saying that better understanding of the virus and how it infects you and how you would block that infection is very valuable in terms of developing vaccines. A a very uh, uh, tangible thing that we're concerned about right now are these variants. You've heard, you know, the UK, the South African, presumably with a computational platform like we have here, we can quite rapidly assess what those variants, those variants are changes of the amino acids, right? So we can hopefully rather quickly, maybe not totally conclusively, but pretty quickly understand the changes it's causing and help in the design of of new modified vaccines and things like that. You know, in terms of the public to know, I mean, it shows that supercomputers can be central to this multifaceted challenge that we face. We, we face societal challenges. We face economic challenges. The biggest challenge is getting a vaccine or a set of vaccines that we can distribute very quickly and that, that they don't have to be modified. But the idea is that computing and computer modeling, just like in so many walks of life, is critical to start to understand this virus and allows us to study the components in a virtual way. And the way that usually works with experimental sciences It helps understand the different pathways and narrow down the pathways. For example, if you're designing a pharmaceutical or drug, an antiviral drug, it could help narrow down the candidates. And then, as I mentioned, mutation, if you have a pretty good understanding of mutation is a change, we can presumably pretty quickly get that into the model and begin to start understanding what that's doing. I, I believe what's happening with those is they are more... They stick to the ACE2 proteins more so. I don't think they've changed the basic mechanism. Some of the other variants may evade antibodies, the the ones that they're quite worried about that may uh, render the the vaccines less useful. Um, So all that can be understood at a molecular level and, and that could be helped by a model like this. You've been listening to Romeo Morrow of UC San Diego and Gregory Voth of the University of Chicago. Fans of the Tech Podcast might have noticed that we rebranded. We're now Supersized Science. And we've got some good news to share. Supersized Science has joined the Texas Podcast Network. The Conversations Changing the World, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed on this podcast represent the views of the hosts and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.